From the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria, this is the Dyson House Podcast, a series that investigates and demystifies real issues in international affairs. And today we're going to be talking about peacekeeping. At first glance, peace seems like a simple concept. To take a broad view, quite often we think of peace as the thing that happens in the absence of war. But it's not always that simple. What happens when a peacekeeping mission stops a war and the people are still starving? Do we count this as successful peace? Is it still pacific when the peacekeepers become peace enforcers? Who has the right to engage in peacekeeping missions and under what circumstances can it be justified? In this episode, we talked to Dr. Charles T. Hunt of RMIT University, Melbourne, about how to define peacekeeping and the best moral course for navigating the changing nature of peacekeeping missions, civilian protection, and the increasing willingness to use force in the name of peace. So my name's Dr. Charles Hunt. I'm a senior research fellow here at RMIT University in the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies, actually in a research centre called the Social and Global Studies Centre. That is, a, that is a title and a half. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so I guess I'd like to start off today with a little bit about your backgrounds and how you found yourself involved in this area. Uh, were there any pivotal moments in your career that brought you here? Yeah, well, my background, uh, my studies um, were in political science, philosophy, international relations and economics, uh, undergraduate, undergraduate level. And, um, and I went on to study a master's degree in international studies focused on peace and, and conflict. And uh, it was during that master's degree that I was focused on the role of the media, in particular the radio, in fueling the Rwandan genocide. Now, we had 20, uh, 25th anniversary commemorations recently uh, marking the, the Rwandan genocide. And during those studies, I was interested, wondering what role the media, the radio, but other media as well might have in preventing conflict or, or after violent conflict, potentially building peace. So it was that that got me interested in questions around the role of the UN and how it could engage in, in conflict and, and conflict resolution. Um, after those studies, I uh, got an internship, which was a serendipitous moment, I think, which is when you ask about pivotal moments, I think that was one. Uh, and this was in Accra, in Ghana, in West Africa, where I went to the Kofi Annan International Peacekeeping Training Centre to do a, an internship working on peacekeeping policy, peacekeeping uh, research. Uh, and it was there that I uh, visited peacekeeping missions for the first time. And uh, I, I have one memory of flying in a UN helicopter over the thick forests of West Africa up to the, the border areas of northern Liberia to the refugee camps where we had on board um, a band, a full band with all their instruments, um, a comedian, a Liberian comedian right. dressed up as a clown. We had Miss Liberia 2005, I think, wow. um, all crammed into this Ukrainian helicopter. We flew up over the thick like fields of broccoli uh, from, from above and I think maybe it was around then that I thought, 
there's something in this that yeah. <laughs> stay involved in. That is quite the internship. <laughs> That's an incredible experience. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking, when oh, you had sure. to do that? So, I guess I was around 25 years old when I finished my master's. And, uh, yeah, good age to do that. Wow, what an experience. Well, I mean, w- would you be able to define what peacekeeping entails then and what role the UN plays in this process? Sure. So peacekeeping, the definitions around peacekeeping can become quite difficult, quite um, quite contested in some ways. In the most basic sense and in a way that most people understand it, it's a, a type of third party intervention into conflict situations or post-conflict situations. And usually it's predicated, premised on on three cardinal principles. So the first is that this intervention will have the consent of the major parties to the conflict. So they allow it to come. They, they either invite it or welcome its arrival. Secondly, that it will act impartially with respect to those parties. So it will treat them equally, more or less, um, with respect to their mandate. And lastly, that they'll only engage in the use of force to the minimum degree necessary. So the minimum use of force, and this was historically at least primarily about um, self-defense. So these types of interventions were in the beginnings of the UN from the late 1940s, but through the Cold War period, primarily about interposing between states who were at war. So it was an interpositional force. This has changed more recently to be about conflict within states. So how do we deal with conflict inside states? So that's peacekeeping in a a broad sense. the United Nations is a, a key player in this, but it's not the only one. It's important to remember that UN peacekeeping is part of a kind of, if you like, a global system of peace operations. Is there often a misconception that the UN or the UN's role, the, the role that the UN plays in peacekeeping is what peacekeeping is? Do you find that people often misconstrue those two things? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair point. Um, it's probably... In general, it's the largest peacekeeping actor. So in some ways, it's kind of accurate. They're they're the the biggest fish in the pond, if you like. But but the way the UN does peacekeeping, those principles I talked about primarily underpin the UN's approach to peacekeeping. That's not necessarily the way that other actors engage in peace operations. So you can think of regional arrangements like the African Union, like the Economic Community of West African States, another West African sub-regional organisation. But the European Union, NATO, they've all deployed what they call and what uh, are argued to be peace operations, which may take a slightly different shape and have a different flavour, but, but nevertheless are part of this system. The last thing to note there is that increasingly, but always to some extent, these players are usually in some configuration, a constellation in the same places. So in today's missions, maybe we'll get into this later, but um, in in today's conflict zones and peacekeeping sites like the Congo, like Central African Republic, like Mali, the UN will have a peacekeeping mission and it will be in a configuration, a constellation with an EU training mission with a a French counter-terrorism force with an African Union stabilisation element. So these things are quite fluid and quite complex arrangements rather than singular entities. I was going to say this is something I would like to return to because it sounds like quite a convoluted process yet somehow there is a way that this all seems to work so I'd be interested in finding a bit more about that but I thought I'd just move on quickly and ask what the main trends in UN peace operations are. 
Sure. Well, the the first thing to note, and following on from the previous point about the UN being the, the biggest player, it might be useful to just make make it clear what that looks like at the moment. So today, there's around 14, depending on exactly how you define it, around 14 of the big multi-dimensional missions. That puts about 100,000 people, um, close to... Um, 80,000, I think, 90,000 uniformed personnel, so troops and police. The police are around 10,000 of that. Um, in in these 14 missions on four different continents, but primarily in Africa, in, in five big missions in Africa, 80% of um, current peacekeeping uh, personnel are, are on the African continent. Um, one important point about that, while the 100,000 figure suggests, well, well, is factually the case that it's the biggest deployed force in the world, so it makes the UN Secretary General the commander-in-chief of the biggest deployed force around the world, this is an important thing to note. But that 100,000 is actually much bigger if you put it in a slightly longer time frame. In, a, in an average year, that would require about a quarter of a million people to rotate through these missions that 100,000 are on the ground at any one time but the 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 rotations of particularly the troops can often be quite short and so um so this is a huge number of people engaged in this endeavor so so that's just to to clarify the the point about the size and and um and the presence if you like the footprint um you wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the trends well there's a number of trends, but but I could probably try and point to four key trends that I, my research has identified and, yeah, and please, that, um, that seem to be um, regularly um, identified this way. So the first is that UN peacekeeping missions, I mentioned before that there's a shift um, at the end of the Cold War from interposition between states towards dealing with internal conflict, civil war. Um, more recently, the nature of those civil wars is arguably changing or shifting. Um, but in particular, UN missions are being deployed at a different point in the conflict cycle. They're increasingly deployed when conflict is still ongoing and active. So two-thirds of those missions I just discussed are currently deployed in areas where there's either no peace to keep for the peacekeepers or where peace agreements are fragile and tenuous and, and many repeated bouts of failure. Um, what is that op- in, uh, opposed to? How, how did it used to function? When would they... F- deploy troops in in previous a good, situations. A good point of clarification. So invariably it would be after parties had agreed to a ceasefire. Oh, I see. Okay. At least a ceasefire, but often a peace agreement as well. The UN peacekeeping mission would be deployed in support of that peace peace agreement. Okay. Um, so in the absence of um, full engagement in peace agreements, inclusive peace agreements, um, UN has increasingly been deploying missions. The Security Council has increasingly been mandating these missions to deploy in, in, um, into active conflict. And this has a number of, um, of um, implications, but one of the main ones is that um, the, the UN is now deployed in situations where ongoing conflict includes elements, non-state armed groups, who are proliferating in number, so there's a lot more, um, which makes the environment more risky. But also some of those are, are violent extremists or, 
of terrorist groups uh, labeled as such by the UN on their sanctions list, yeah. um, but who don't see the UN as a legitimate actor in global politics. So they target the UN. So the UN's gone from being um, occasionally caught in the crossfire yeah. to being put in directly in the crosshairs. Yeah, they, they're in the firing line now. They can be. So that's one key trend. Um, this has a knock-on effect, if you like, for these other key trends that I wanted to discuss. Yeah. So so the second one is that um, these ongoing conflicts and the nature of conflict has um, meant that civilians often bear the brunt of this conflict. It's not warring party, war, armed forces of governments fighting each other over territory. It's um, a, a type of, of civil war where civilians... Um, bear the brunt of of the violence. So this has meant that UN peace operations, particularly in the aftermath, I mentioned the Rwandan genocide before, but also the Srebrenica massacres, these periods in the mid, this period of the mid nineties was a a time that led to introspection within the UN as an organization, a a critical self-reflection on why they were unable to, or why they didn't stop some of those massacres and, and atrocities. And this has given rise to the protection of civilians as a core objective of these missions. So that's the second trend, that protection of civilians has become a centre of gravity. So 95% of today's peacekeepers are deployed under a mandate, including, and we can come back to this point, but a mandate to use all necessary means, which is the the kind of code word or the... um, the euphemism, if you like, for for the use of force. So that's the second trend. The third one is that in order to deal with the ongoing nature of conflict and the lack of buy-in from some of these elements, or indeed the non-recognition of armed groups as, as legitimate, the way in which the UN is pursuing peace has taken on um, a, st- a stabilisation logic. So the idea being that in order to stabilise the conflict, you need to first um, create a semblance of security and well-being, primarily through the extension of state authority. So these missions, as I mentioned, are they're deployed with the consent of the parties, particularly the host state. And the idea behind most of the UN's big peacekeeping missions is that by extending that state's authority, by deploying the military and the police, the security agencies out into the the rural or peripheries of of the country, that will stabilise the situation and and lay the platform for for future efforts. Um, This has a number of um, consequences, which we can get back to as well. I'm seeing a whole bunch of implications behind this incredibly convoluted process now. Let me just quickly mention that last fourth trend yeah, please, um, yeah. um, and then we can come back to some of the implications because they all, of course, intersect and feed off each other. They're not independent threads. But this fourth one, and um, we've already touched on it in some ways, is yeah. in order to pursue the protection of civilians, in order to extend state authority, in order to operate in contexts where there's ongoing conflict, mm. these missions have arguably, I've argued in some of my research, taken a robust turn so they've um been given um been authorized with more use of force all necessary means and occasionally been shown willing to employ that force this is not very normal that peacekeepers use force but nevertheless the change in posture from a more defensive self-protective um conservative approach to engaging in military coercive affairs into one which is more proactive 
um, and and um, aiming to be on the front foot, if you like, so a robust posture um, in order to to take on some of the the issues at hand, which which maybe we can go into. The very last thing I'll say on trends is that all of that stuff is going on in the field to to to, to a large extent, but in New York at headquarters, this whole endeavor the un peace operations system is coming under increasing pressure to reduce the budget to downsize to demonstrate effectiveness and prove its worth um, um as it comes under pressure for for budget cuts just out of interest how recently has that pressure been going on is it a very recent thing or is it i i think that's a great question um to be perfectly honest the the pressure on the peacekeeping budget has has always been there. So right. okay. member states have never been flashed with the cash in yeah. terms of supporting UN peacekeeping. There's always been a reluctance to to throw money at peacekeeping in ways that haven't been evidenced and, and proven, yep. which has a lot of sense to it. However, particularly recently, um, uh, the uh, the incumbent government in the United States, in particular, who pays. 28% of the UN peacekeeping budget, which until very recently was more than the rest of the major powers, the permanent five members of the Security Council. It was more than the, the other four put together. So the US is the major contributor to the budget, and they've been one of the major um, actors putting downward pressure on, on the budget, attempts to cut funding from the big missions in the Congo um, and um, going forward possibly in Mali. Very understandable that there's a new pressure with the uh, Trump government as well. I imagine this is a whole other, not something to discuss now, but I can imagine it would be a, a, another challenge to this entire process. I guess on that point of um, ha- facing these budget cuts and then wanting to prove that these peacekeeping missions are important and worthwhile, I was just wondering what constitutes the success of a peacekeeping mission? Yeah, that's that's exactly the question that's... Um animating let's say um a number of people in new york um because this is the response right if you're coming under pressure to say we deserve this funding in fact we need much more then um then then this is the way that it seems we need to respond to those kind of calls sure this is a question i've looked at from a kind of conceptual perspective in my research work and then there's a practical side to it too so so very quickly i mean what constitutes success in a peacekeeping mission is is extremely difficult to to define. I mean, the appearance, the emergence of peace writ large is one way of thinking about it, right? Yeah. But even that is contested or is nuanced in in the theory and, and thinking on on peace peace studies. So we have on the one hand a, an idea of negative peace, which is the absence of violence or the absence of of threat of violence to people. So it's this sense that it's the absence of something that that is peace. But then on the other hand, there's the idea of positive peace, which is where there's much more substance to peace. It's the prospect of prosperity and and well-being and development and escaping conflict traps. So even the the appearance or the the presence of peace is quite difficult to to nail down. Um, Absolutely. This is just a complete side note, but I I feel like that second one would get really wrapped up in ideas of like, democratization and things like that as well which would further complicate things from a cultural perspective and very much so so the ideas that come 
um, that peacekeeping missions come laden with. Often peacekeeping missions are um, just one, like I said, they're one of many actors contributing to the overall effects and intended effects. So what sustainable peace looks like is to some extent contested, certainly partly unproven. Like we don't know exactly what what some of these things look like, but we do know what indicators of, of things being very bad look like. So what you what you're saying is is very right that that the the kind of fit of certain ideas like what type of state if if the UN missions in places like Mali, Congo and Central African Republic are extending state authority then are we sure that the state that's being extended is likely to guarantee to ensure to underwrite the protections of people's um, fundamental well-being, like their physical protection, but also beyond that, civil and political rights, developmental questions around what what the political system and governance arrangements look like. Of course, this is a very contested space. So you point you point to um, you point to an important element there. Um, just just quickly back on the conceptual thinking around um, success in peacekeeping, though, to try and ground it a bit more. That was that was the up in the clouds stuff. Yeah, to, to ground it a bit more. Yeah, there's a lot of research out there that's looked at longer term trends, which suggests that peacekeeping is successful. Now they define success in a particular way, but I'll give you three examples. This is a body of research that shows that where peacekeeping missions have been deployed, we've seen the incidence of recidivism, so relapse back into conflict, reduced by half. So there's there's statistic I won't remember now, but about the number of conflicts which relapse into conflict again in the future is very high. That's, that's I should be able to give you a more accurate idea than that, but it's very high. Yes. But the, this research shows that if there's a, a peacekeeping mission deployed into that situation, it could or has in many cases reduced that um, relapse um, possibility by by around a half. That's one body of research. Another one that um, shows that when peacekeepers are deployed, the overall levels of violence reduce. So this could be battle-related deaths. It could be um, civilian targeting across the board. That um, the, the overall level of the destructiveness of the conflict, if you like, in human toll um, has reduced. Another big potential success story for, for peacekeeping. And lastly, that as a subset of that, civilian victimization has reduced in these cases as well. So when civilians are targeted disproportionately in these types of wars, actually there's data out there and research based on it that, that suggests when UN peacekeeping missions are there, that civilian victimization can be reduced. Which is a fascinating point because if a large focus of these peacekeeping missions is on the protection of civilians, then that seems like a really successful a really interesting way of measuring the success of these missions uh, i was just wondering going back to something you mentioned before what challenges we see in this robust turn and when we see it move from a passive to a more active role and uh what that represents for the un and its peacekeeping missions yeah well i think you you've already uh, alluded to a couple of these challenges but um the the first key thing that happens as peacekeepers either are authorized to, but certainly if and when they use force, um, there's a real risk that there's a blurring of the lines between these 
ideas of traditional peacekeeping, the peacekeeping based on these principles that we discussed earlier, and other concepts, other approaches to intervention, um, things like peace enforcement, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism. Um, there's there's a real risk that the lines between these types of operations, between these types of engagements become blurred. So that's the first thing. That then, of course, has a number of potential implications and consequences. The first and really important one, which we, we certainly touched on before, is that the UN can be seen as becoming a party to the conflict in some of these situations. So, um, for example, in in the eastern Congo, in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where the UN's mission there, MONUSCO, included since 2013 a force intervention brigade, which is essentially an, an auxiliary bata- uh, brigade, which was given a separate mandate within the UN's overall mandate, but a separate mandate to take on militarily, to militarily defeat armed groups which had been identified by name in a Security Council mandate. They use the language in the mandate of neutralization. You get get the impression here that sometimes <laughs> words are used to, to as euphemisms for other things. But yeah. but this is a clear case of where the UN has become, and, and many legal scholars have argued this, that the UN in the Congo became a party to a conflict. It wasn't the original conflict. The UN became an actor in a, in a new conflict, if you yeah. like. It was it was militarily taking on um, on one particular actor. In other cases, in somewhere like Mali, um, this constellation idea I, I mentioned earlier, if the UN's operating alongside counterterrorism uh, military interventions across the Sahel, so there's the French uh, Barkhane um, intervention, which is a, a French counterterrorism operation, um, and alongside them is an African force called the G5 Sahel, um, which is made up of a group of five nations in the in the Sahel who are also conducting um, anti-terrorist um, operations. Now, the UN, strictly speaking, according to Security Council resolutions, is cooperating and coordinating, no, coordinating, not cooperating with them. But it's, uh, uh, um, it's no secret that they share intelligence, they support each other. Occasionally, they're co-located in bases. So to, to locals on the ground, it's hard to imagine that there's a clear distinction between these actors. Now, I imagine it must be a very different picture on the grounds, especially for people in these countries that are affected, interacting with these sort of multi-layered uh, peace approaches. Very much so. And and that's a key a key part back to the question of success. As I said, all these things are interlinked. But yeah. um, if if local populations don't see the UN as a credible actor, either as a mediator, as an impartial mediator between these parties to the conflict, yeah. if they don't see them as as either impartial or at least effective and, and credible, yeah. then they will not provide their consent to the mission. So consent from the parties to the conflict is often looked at from the top down. It's looked at in terms of host states, in terms of the heads of armed groups, in terms of the broader and national level politics. But actually what occurs at the local level is really important for the effectiveness of peacekeeping. Well, actually, that kind of leads me to another question that I was meaning to ask. I was wondering if you could explain where the willingness or the hesitation for participation amongst emerging powers 
in the development and application of peacekeeping stems from? Sure. So this is another, I mean, when I tried to identify a, a few trends in the field, yeah. I was looking mostly there, but this is another really important um, macro trend, if you like, at the headquarters level in global politics more, more generally. And and so what we've seen um, in, I guess, over the last decade particularly, um, is the growing significance involvement of a number of so-called rising powers in in peacekeeping. So um, this has happened through um, contribution of troops, police, um, also the rising contributions to the budget. But here I'm thinking of countries like uh, Brazil. Mm. Brazil have been a big troop contributor and police as well, particularly to the Haiti mission in their sort of near neighbourhood. Um, India has been a long-standing um, troop contributor. It's a huge um troop contributor to UN peacekeeping but as a kind of rising power as part of the BRICS kind of um, configuration hey, It's interesting then, that it's the BRICS that are Yeah well these are not the only ones but I guess I'm giving examples from there. South Africa too um, has for a long time been a contributor to peacekeeping but it's a really important one in key um, areas again perhaps in its its uh, its sphere of influence if you like so the Congo mission um, is one where, where the South Africans are a long-standing contributor but China is the one that is perhaps most interesting in the most ways here because it's not just deploying um, troops um, into its kind of geostrategic areas of influence that is also true so it's become the the 12th biggest contributor of all um, UN member states, which in a a neat symmetry to what I said about the US as a funder earlier, China is the biggest contributor to peacekeeping um, and the number it contributes is bigger than the rest of the P5 combined. So you get this kind of symmetry or this, this kind of mirror image. And so China's the 12th biggest contributor, but it's now the second largest financial contributor. So what you have historically across particularly the last 20 years is a situation, a division of labor, if you like, where the, those who pay do not play. Yeah. So you get the rich Western industrialized country of Europe and, and the North, the global North, paying for peacekeeping and the global South doing the peacekeeping. The national treasure comes from the global North, the national blood spilt comes from the global South, if you like. China subvert, invert, challenge this kind of uh, configuration because they do both. They're paying and playing. And so this, I think, is which gets to your question about what are the motivations. Um, so they're there. This, they're, it, what's clear is that they've arrived in a big way in, yeah. in peacekeeping. In addition to that, we've seen um, the kind of manoeuvring or seeking out um, leadership positions within the peacekeeping system. So particularly in field missions, the kind of police commissioners, force commanders, these senior positions in missions, uh, there's been attempts, not only, but including uh, by China to, to, to seek those positions and also within the bureaucracy in New York, perhaps taking on more leadership roles. Now, why why is that the case and, and what, what are the motivations? Well, they're, they're manifold for sure. What the scholars, you know, of international relations argue is that um, 
firstly, it's about demonstrating a kind of peaceful rise. It's about contributing to the established rules of the game and, and being seen as a good global citizen. So you see China contributing more to established ways of managing conflict in, in places like Africa. Um, but secondly, there's this... Um, for, this idea of glow, growing influence over the way that the ideas that influence how global governance is done, how the UN responds to to, to conflict. So, um, some of the things you mentioned there about democratization, but but the ideas, the values, the norms which come with intervention, which come with peacekeeping, yeah. maybe. Um, the practice of the last 20 years doesn't align very neatly with some of the values that China espouses or doesn't. So here I'm thinking particularly around the question of human rights, which we've seen quite recently, the Russians and the Chinese pushing back quite hard on the inclusion of funding for human rights posts within peacekeeping. So the rise of China could have implications, many, many, but but one, one could be that we see peacekeeping shifting in terms of what its foci are. That is a fascinating change of uh, power dynamics within something that already seems like it's quite complicated. You, you've, you've almost, or you've sort of pointed in this direction, but I just wanted to ask as a final question, uh, because we are running low on time, but if we were going to look towards the future, which we have been talking about, do you see these trends threaten the long-term well-being of peacekeeping? Well, this is the question that preoccupies me the most, I think. Like, I, I'm looking at uh, particularly that question around protection of civilians, um, how it's emerged and why it's become such an important factor. And, in fact, uh, uh, what, what what's interesting is that whether it's these missions are given the resources adequate resources or not, they'll be judged very heavily, very sternly on their performance against that protection mandate. Um, So we've seen recent uh, massacres in central Mali um, and that mission has been, um, protection has not been seen as as much of a priority there as in some other missions. But the, the, the response to that is, well, the UN is there. Why has it not been able to prevent this? Or at least why is it not responded to it? And in the future... How will it? So we, we see this kind of um, challenge about how do we how do we make that more realistic and how do we manage expectations around what the UN can achieve? Now, what do I think about the future? Well, I think is there a threat to the long term well being? I think I would say maybe. So, on the one hand, the peacekeeping principles we discussed earlier are without doubt being stretched. Yeah. They're being challenged in terms of the outer limits of peacekeeping. Peacekeepers are being asked to use force or be more offensive and proactive in ways that challenge the minimum use of force. They're picking winners and losers in the stabilisation question. So they're at least um, jeopardising their claim to impartiality to to all the main actors. And when it comes to consent, um, they're they're facing real challenges there too. Um, It's quite clear that they don't have the consent of for example, violent extremist groups in northern Mali where they're deployed and, and the question of their safety and security comes up there. So the principles are being stretched. This is on the one hand. What does that do? Well, if it does make peacekeepers more vulnerable, then maybe it leads these troop contributors, these police contributors to say, 
we're not so sure about sending our people into the line of fire. And maybe the China, the India, the even South Africa, who are not so comfortable with some of the liberal ideals being pursued through, you know, the state building approaches in, in the history of peacekeeping, who may say, well, the risks are too high, the ideas are not ours, maybe we're not going to be part of this going forward or as much, or certainly not in the most risky cases. If that's the case, then we don't have our biggest deployed force in the world. We won't have the 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 UN peacekeeping cadre to to send. So in that case, yeah, I think there is a question about the 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 existential kind of future of of peacekeeping as we know it. So that's on the one hand. However, on the other hand, and this is the the the, the long history of peacekeeping, yeah. it always reinvents itself. Right. Okay. So Right now we see a number of the relatively recently installed new Secretary General, um, Antonio Guterres, um, came into office with big plans to reform the organization at the headquarters level, but also the peace and security pillar of the UN in general. So we saw some um, reconfiguration of the, the way things are done in New York, but there's been a huge drive, an agenda called the Action for Peacekeeping Initiative, which is an attempt to really muster, to re-energize a kind of political will around peacekeeping, to say, we know the things that we want it to do, that it can do, but we need to ha- demonstrate the political will to act in the most difficult cases and to, and to address some of the most difficult problems. Now, the key thing there, as far as I, I'm concerned, is this argument about that peacekeeping and this is about the use of force as well, that it can never be um, a substitute for a political process. It's always been intended and always should be um, in support of a political process. It can't be seen as a substitute for one. So the utility of force is limited um, unless there's a viable peace process in play. Similarly, peacekeeping as a tool in general will um, will struggle. That's been recognised. It's badged the primacy of politics. Everyone voices this ad nauseum it's the thing everyone can agree on the primacy of politics what we don't know is what that means when the rubber hits the road what does that look like the implications in each each of the cases what does putting politics first really mean in particular when you have a recalcitrant government whose consent you rely on who are abusing their own population what does it mean to be robust in your politics towards that government? Yes. And do you risk being ejected, being um, sent out of the country? Um, so these questions are really uh, significant. The, the reform agendas are trying to grapple with this. Um, there's no easy answers to this. But um, in contrast to the existential threat to peacekeeping, I would say that these reform initiatives offer some hope, maybe some promise on on how maybe it will find a way to shapeshift and, and become relevant again to this latest, newest set of challenges. It's a fascinating test because you're trying to refocus an ideology without having any practical evidence to back it up, but you have to sort of have faith in the fact that perhaps this is the best next step and we're not going to know until that happens. It's, it's a really uh, insightful point you make. Um, what... What I think is is the case is that these missions don't get deployed always. So we see cases such as Syria, Yemen today, where where UN peacekeeping is either not the right tool or it's not accepted by by parties to the conflict. Um, so so that is the case. But it 
is also often the last resort in places where where there's no other help at hand. So it often responds to cases where where no one else is there to assist civilians under threat of imminent physical violence, where humanitarian crises are spiraling out of control and displacement um, is is flowing across borders. So UN peacekeeping might not be um, the most effective tool. It's certainly not the only tool tool we have for addressing conflict in the the international system, but it could play an important part if we can be clear about where it's effective, why it is, and not jeopardise the underpinning principles that allow it to to be that way. And I might just add one thing. Uh, it's worth worth remembering that the UN is often held up as either by its proponents as this idealized collective security kind of um, organization and by its critics is the thing that can never live up to those high ideals. The second Secretary General, Dag Hammarskjöld, um, said quite, I think, um, aptly that the United Nations was not created to take us to heaven. It was created to save us from hell. Now, while there's a lot we could pick into that, um, I think it, it makes a salient point about what we should expect or what we might um, need to be careful of um, over setting the expectations on peacekeeping. Maybe it's an important part of the talking. I just wanted to know about the pitfalls that happen when you put too much emphasis on governments to maintain socio-political order in post-conflict countries. Um, I, you mentioned before there's like community-based actors and private actors. I was just wondering how they influence that process yeah, I'm trying to remember what we said before, but um, it's it's very relevant to where where we were discussing. It's a little bit about the import of ideas of of what go- good governance looks like and and what is likely to be effective. Um, my own research with some colleagues um, looks at the importance of local sources of of security and justice. So so like you say, community emplaced or embedded. Um, actors such as traditional chiefs, let's think primarily in Africa, but also in the in the Pacific and um, in closer in this neighbourhood. Um, the role of chiefs is critical. So they're often um, have a dual identity, or in fact, multiple composite identities. But in many ways, they draw on tradition and, and heritage and connection to land and place um, for their legitimacy, and, and, and their authority stems from that. So local populations will will um, sometimes revere, but at least other times adhere to the the authority of, of a traditional chief such as that. But at the same time, they often draw authority from formal state constitutions. So they're often in post-colonial states, the role of the chief is somehow inserted or put into the hierarchy of, of, of order. So you get local actors who are very important, um, but they're often romanticized or essentialized as something outside, different to the state. Okay. When in fact, all of our research and, and many others point to the fact that these systems, these actors, sources of authority are deeply entwined and connected and in fact hybridized over time. So there's no such thing that they've they've been out in the bush and never come into contact with the you know the forces of globalization and yeah. so on and so forth. Particularly in Africa, um, my experience this is true. A chief will often 
um, have deep connection to culture and, and, and custom, but may have been educated in the West, may ha- own a business in the US and land in London and, and, wow. and so on. So you'd be making a grave error if you sort of assumed that some of these external factors or internal factors were mutually exclusive. You kind of got to assume that this is a very large Venn diagram that you have to sort of try and navigate. That's an interesting thing I should take forward, um, the, 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 the big Venn diagram. What, what we talk about in, in the broad area of work is about networked relationality or the relational the ways in which sociopolitical order emerges. So, and by that, what I mean is that um, these different sources of authority uh, that have different jurisdictions that some operate in terms of dispute resolution, others uh, um, handling executive authority of detention of the police, mm. so on and so forth. But these are not independent silos often. They're mm. interpenetrating systems and ways of, of ordering society and social relations. Back to your question and why is this relevant to peacekeeping? Well, there's uh, historically there's been... It's extremely difficult for peacekeeping missions to engage in this type of peace building. They're, they're very limited in what they're resourced to do and often what they're mandate, mandated to do. Yep. But they are often a bridge. They're often the, the, the big presence of the international system, mm. which exists at a time when there's a transition from coming out of war and moving towards this idea of sustainable peace or consolidating the peace afterwards. Now, at that point, the UN historically has been pretty bad at recognising the ways in which social political order um, emerges in the local context, both in negative ways that can lead to and generate problems and violence, but also in positive ways. And so it's often dismissed or, or wiped away and, and new kind of approaches and institutions uh, are brought in and built up to displace that. Now, that's, that's a, a point of contention that many, including me, argue that the, the UN could do better at understanding how to engage in some of those questions as they look to exit. So the exit strategy for these missions, um, rather than simply handing over authority and the responsibility to protect all of these populations, handing that over to these security agencies which have been abusive and predatory very recently and therefore are not trusted hugely, perhaps a configuration, again, a kind of balance that that brings in some of these other sources of of protection, of security and justice um, is is one way that, that can be done. Much of this has been tried and attempted and there's been efforts along the way, but it's certainly an area that there could be more done. Dr. Hunt will be giving a talk about the protection of civilians in Myanmar peacekeeping operations on the 29th of May at the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. You've been listening to the Dyson House podcast.